For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Stephen Buckman, the author of a new look at natural history called The Reason for Flowers. Meet a local man who learned to read and write after more than 50 years of keeping his illiteracy a secret. An essay from wildlife illustrator Beth Surdit talks about the adventures that may be outside your window or lurking on your floor. That and more coming up next on Arizona Spotlight. Flowers can be found everywhere in the Sonoran Desert, and they have stealthily infiltrated many aspects of our culture. From weddings to funerals, get well soon wishes to romantic gestures, from art and poetry to fabric designs and fragrances, flowers play a large role in our daily lives that is far beyond their humble ecological purpose. Stephen Buckman is an adjunct professor of entomology, ecology, and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. He's also an expert on pollination and bees, and he's authored more than a half dozen books on the connection between flora and fauna. Buckman's latest is a collection of natural history essays called The Reason for Flowers. What is the first thing that someone does when you give them a flower, or better yet, a whole bouquet? They grab them. They bring them up to their face, they inhale deeply, and they flash a big toothy smile, uh, something psychologists call a Duchesne smile, right? A true smile, not one of those fakey TV smiles. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like to think that without flowers, we as a species, humans, wouldn't exist. If you go back far enough, you go back two, three, four, five million years ago, our hominid ancestors were out hunting food, and it wasn't all big, fierce animals. They were going after fruits and berries. And I don't talk about it a lot in the book, but I like to think that as uh, the earliest farmers and before that, the earliest hunter-gatherers were, let's face it, women. And they were probably attuned to flowers because they were the harbingers of tasty fruits and nutritious seeds that came later. I also like to say that... uh, Flowers don't get around much unless they're a prom corsage. So in a way, learning to read the flowers may have been one of the first forms of literacy. I think so. Part of this nature craft or nature wisdom that we see in um, indigenous peoples all over the world that have to live by their wits in the forest or desert and not finding their stuff shrink-wrapped at Safeway. (laughs) Well, leaping ahead many thousands of years, if not millions, <laughs> to the Victorian era, yes. w- you make a point about some of the many ways that the Victorian culture influenced us to this day involving flowers. What do you think may have been some of the reasons why Victorian culture was so interested in making flowers a part of everything? Then, as today, um, Britain is really a nation of gardeners. And, and somehow, during the great plant ex exploration, quests around the world, uh, all kinds of things were coming to England, especially to Kew Gardens, and they were being tested by horticulturalists. And I talk about some of the plant collectors and distributors in the book, but things, for example, like the giant Amazon water lily, uh, Victoria Amazonica. I mean, here was this thing that had 
lily pads five or six feet across that could support the weight of a child and had these beautiful white blooms. And so all of a sudden you had immense glass houses at Kew and other places. I mean, there were wealthy middle and upper class individuals in Britain who were building these insanely uh, grandiose hothouses and filling them up with rare orchids and, and other plants. So it was a sign of the times that they were, they were just bringing in all this stuff and trying to grow it. And those plants were major spectacles. They attracted crowds, lines, queues, as they would say in England, queues outside queue yes. to, to line up to see them. Um, that's something that is hard to imagine today outside of a select group, botany enthusiasts or horticulturists. Mm -hmm. every, every once in a while, you'll see something about uh, giant voodoo lily or corpse flowers at the Miami Botanical Garden or L.A. Arboretum or something. So, uh, for example, the two contenders for the world's largest flower are either the giant carrion flower of Borneo, <laughs> Rafflesia, uh, or the corpse flower or voodoo lily from Indonesia. And not quite true to say it's a single flower, but it's a collection of flowers. But still, this is a display that over a period of a few weeks uh, turns into this immense spathe and spadix that's about six feet tall. So, you know, that's a big flower. There's a quote that I'll always remember from the biography of the actor Charles Lawton. He was married to Elsa Lanchester. Uh, they were both actors from England. And they, when they moved to California, they inherited a garden. And they had a night-blooming cirrus. And in the book, the quote is, A night-blooming cirrus party is the most wonderful type of affair where any sort of person can meet and mix well with others. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I, I, that quote has always stayed with me since I read that. Yeah, I love that. I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I'm a big Queen of the Night fan myself, and I attend all of the uh, Tohono Chul Bloom Nights and uh, actually studied the chemicals that make up the Datura and Queen of the Night blend with, with Rob Raguso at Cornell. So we know a little bit about what chemicals are attracting the moths. But it's an incredible spectacle because Datura and Queen of the Night um, – and other night-blooming serious cacti bloom really rapidly. So they literally go from a, a bud to a fat bud to a flower right before your eyes. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to set up a camera taking photos about every 30 seconds for four or five hours and making time-lapse images of these as they unfurl because they're, they're just amazing. When you look out at an area of the desert here close to home, and you see the flowers, you see that abundant flora, what kind of things go through your mind that might be different? Is the history of those flowers there for you to read in a way? It is. Um, as a pollination ecologist and bee biologist, I look at these floras. And for, for example, I, I tend to work in deserts and tropical rainforests. Those are really my two favorites. But in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona, northern Mexico, the floral landscape is writ in yellows, basically. You have kind of a yellow-dominated flora. So you think of our Palo Verdes and lots of other flowers. And there are a few white ones, red ones, and blue ones, but predominantly we've got yellow flowers. And these are indicative of perhaps the richest bee real estate on the planet. And we don't 
really know how many native ground and twig nesting bees we have in the Sonoran Desert. I, I would might guess seven or eight hundred. Uh, in Arizona, we have thirteen hundred species. Everything from the world's smallest bee, Perda de minima, millimeter and a half long, to the gentle giants, the big black carpenter bees that people complain about nesting in their patio. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought of. Yeah, yeah. the carpenter bees. Yeah. So we have an extremely rich uh, bee fauna. I don't think I was aware that carpenter bees were pollinators. They are. They visit lots of flowers. They'll go to sunflowers. You'll see them on a lot of different types of flowers. As someone with a stronger interest in biology than botany, I still found a lot to get excited about in your book because perhaps because of your background, you're looking at these flowers from the outside in. Thanks. I, I, I am trying to look at them from sort of the uh, bee's eye view or pollinator eye view so that my career has been spent trying to figure out why flowers are the color, shape, or smell that they are, what the chemistry of the types of pollen and nectar rewards they're producing, when those are produced, and then what pollinators um, come in. So I, I like to think that floral biology or pollination is the best of all possible worlds because you can bring biology, behavior, botany, zoology, chemistry, biophysics, all kinds of things to bear on the problem. And you, you really need to have a, I won't say a, a, a generalist perspective, but certainly a, a wide perspective to be able to keep your eyes and ears open because sometimes something uh, that you observe just just clicks, and then, then it makes sense to how that pollination system works. I think another case that you make in this book is that plants, particularly you can apply this to the desert plants, local flora, they're really playing the long game. Uh, as they I are. mentioned, animals, day-to-day -day survival is so key, but to a plant, it's not really day-to-day -day that their systems are concerned with. That's right. And even, you know, for annuals, it can be pretty dicey, but certainly for long-lived perennials, I mean, saguaros and palaverdes, to be a little bit anthropomorphic, I mean, they, they don't really care if they lose their entire seed crop or most of it one year because, well, maybe next year or maybe 10 years from now, <laughs> they'll, they'll win the lottery. And winning the lottery can only mean, I mean, and can mean as little as replacement of one individual. So if, if you think of the Sagan-esque number of seeds that a saguaro is producing during its 150-year lifetime, you know, millions of seeds. Well, only one of those has to replace the parent. In the end, is there a simple way to express the reason for flowers? Not one thing, but perhaps it's their beauty that has beguiled us and their pollinators. But let's, let's face it, they're reason is to advertise. They're living billboards to advertise for sexual favors. But they also have inspired many cultures and generations of artists and, and poets. And as we touched on earlier, perhaps our hominid ancestors, perhaps we wouldn't be here if flowers had not evolved. That was Stephen Buckman discussing his book, The Reason for Flowers. It will be published later this month by Scribner.
The true cinematic experience can be such a feast for the eyes, it's easy to overlook what it offers to the ears. The role of music in the movies has changed often in the century that has passed since they first combined. Next, film writer Chris DeShiel offers his opinion on what three great film scores were able to contribute to their respective films. Film composers, with few exceptions, don't usually become well-known outside of the world of movie fandom. Among my favorite film scores, I will highlight three that demonstrate the memorable effects that music can have on a movie. All three come from great pictures with other strengths besides the music, but yet were undeniably enhanced by the contribution of the composer. The first is by Bernard Herrmann, widely considered the greatest film composer of all time. His work spanned 35 years, from Citizen Kane to Taxi Driver, but he's most famous for his work with Alfred Hitchcock. He scored seven films for Hitch. I could easily choose North by Northwest or Psycho, but even better than these, in my view, was Herrmann's work on Hitchcock's most personal and most unusual film, Vertigo. Vertigo flopped on its release in 1958, but has since become Hitchcock's most critically favored work. Unlike other Hitchcock films, its pace is slow. It creeps up on you gradually, with little use of the director's normal, sudden surprise effects. Herrmann's music is scary and disturbing in a deeper way than the more obviously exciting violin effects in Psycho, for instance. There are tragically romantic undertones that mirror the state of mind, bordering on madness, of the film's main character, a detective played by James Stewart, in love with someone claiming that she's possessed by the spirit of a woman who committed suicide. Some of the credit for the spooky and dread-inducing atmosphere of this film has to go to the music, which in my opinion is Herrmann's best. My next choice is by Maurice Jarre, a French composer who got a big break when he did the score for Sundays in Sibyl, an unexpected hit that won the Foreign Film Oscar. The director of that film happened to be friends with the English director David Lean, who was looking for someone to score his epic Lawrence of Arabia. Lean took a chance, and the result was one of the most iconic scores in film history. This film, with its intriguing and ambivalent take on the story of T.E. Lawrence, played by Peter O'Toole, has a stunning visual impact with its gorgeous Panavision widescreen photography, still arguably the best use of widescreen ever. But one also can't imagine Lawrence of Arabia without the poetry of Jarre's unforgettable theme. And finally, a quieter film from the same year, 1962, also great, but with a musical score that is perhaps a bit underrated, so seamlessly does it fit the movie. I'm speaking of To Kill a Mockingbird, directed by Robert Mulligan from the Harper Lee novel, and with music by Elmer Bernstein.
Bernstein was a protege of Aaron Copeland. He's better known for the theme from The Magnificent Seven, admittedly a tune that you can't get out of your head, and he would go on to do The Great Escape and dozens more. The music he did for this film, however, moves me deeply whenever I hear it. The story, told from a child's point of view, evokes the first awareness of ugly social realities by innocent kids. And the main theme suggests a sense of mystery and loss, sadness and nostalgia. It's American music at its finest. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Stay tuned for more of the show right after this break. Welcome back to Arizona Spotlight. The Department of Education reports that more than 30 million adults in the United States struggle with basic literacy skills. Many of them also bear the burden of keeping that fact a secret from family or friends. Next, Sandra Westall meets a 58-year-old man who spent decades hiding before turning his life around. 58-year-old Uwe Kylitz proudly points at one of the many education certificates that hangs on a wall in his tiny office. This one right here. This is my very first one. Just a few years ago, this wall was empty because he didn't know how to read or write. Since when I went through high school and and even through uh, grammar, through grammar school, I was trying to be invisible. I didn't want to, you know, have me call names or anything. Hey, this guy can't read. He's stupid. He shouldn't be in here, you know. And I've had that happen, you know, with teachers too, and students. And that's what changed me. I just said, no more. I'm not going to do this anymore. Uvi grew up in New Jersey with his German parents. They were reading English, but not that good. It was mostly just German. They kept asking me to read something, see if you're going to get any better. Even though he graduated high school, his literacy skills never really improved. You just can't teach a person to pick up a book that he's never, that he can't read. I just could not do it. Like Uvi, many adults in Arizona struggle with basic literacy skills, like reading a menu or their utility bills. Betty Stoffer is executive director of Literacy Connects, a Tucson nonprofit that provides basic services for the large portion of the population that can't read or write. 
Unfortunately, adult literacy is a major problem uh, here in the United States, uh, and particularly here in Arizona and Pima County. We have adults who come through our doors all the time who are high school graduates, but they can barely read. So education level doesn't necessarily equate to literacy level. One of our adult learners has said, and he, he'll say this to anybody he talks to, you know people who can't read. You just don't know they can't read because they hide it so well. It was hard keeping that secret. So they tell you to fill something out and you can't do it. I had to wait until I got home so my parents could help me with it. Ubi kept his lack of literacy from co-workers at a Tucson machine shop where he did finishing work for many years. He managed to keep it a secret from friends for more than three decades. But things changed when he got laid off from his dishwashing job at the airport about four years ago. For your job applications, we had to fill out your name, your address, and you had to put down how many people you knew, and you know, and I couldn't read half of the stuff that was on there. I used to have copies of, of applications that I take with me, and I would kind of, oh, that's the same as this, okay, so I can write this in there. And that's when I said, no, no more. Couldn't do it anymore. And plus, my parents passed away. I, I, I needed to learn how to read. That's when he decided it was time to get help. I was really nervous when I walked through there the first time. You know, walking through those doors, and I thought, okay, let's see what happens. Edie Lance Leopard at Literacy Connects teaches basic literacy skills to many adults in Pima County. Most of her students are native English speakers. I'm always in awe of the people who come to us and what they've done in their lives and what they've had to do in their lives. And in our society, there's, there's not a stigma to, oh, I, I can't draw or, oh, I can't. I'm not a math person. There's not a stigma to that. There is a stigma to, what do you mean you can't read? She met Uvi when he started the program five years ago. It was a really small group. I think we started with five or seven students and he was very, very quiet. And then the further the class went, the more he participated. And then he was a very active participant in sharing his comments and his reflections and his connections and asking questions. and got really engaged in the book and I could definitely see that he was on his way to becoming a reader and that book changed everything for him. The classmates on Tuesday began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was tiring for me to explain. Tuesdays with Maury. This book represents that this is how I started since, you know, when I turned 53, I never read a book. It, it just changed my world completely completely changed me. I've been doing different things for different people. Things like getting other students as engaged in reading as he is. There was another student here that Uva was concerned wasn't reading enough. And he said, I'm going to make you read more. I'm going to start a book club and you're going to be in it. We're going to start over. We're going to start over? Okay, good, good, good. This little group of ours has been, we're here, we're here, we're here every Monday. Adult education, especially adult literacy, is not a fast process. This is not something that you're going to see substantial change in literacy levels in a year. Depending on their background and what they've been through and what they're carrying with them and what they're bringing, it's going to be two years, four years, five years. I think we have a lot of adults who have been hiding, have been living invisible lives and voiceless lives. and have so much that they can offer us and so much they can do for our community and our society. 
but they need that chance and they need uh, a safe place and people that understand them. For Uvi, knowing how to read has become such an important part of life that he recently started volunteering as a tutor for a group of ESL students. This is H-E, right? Okay. He, al okay, he always hasn't sunk it in yet that I'm actually doing this. I'm actually being a tutor. I've been catching up to things that I always wanted to do, but I couldn't do them. You know, like try to learn to play my uh, guitar or read a lot of books that I never could do. You know, I'm reading a lot of books and it's like opening doors and wow, you know, I just want more of this. So far, he only knows how to play a few chords, he says with a big smile. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Sandra Westall. Artist and writer Beth Surdit listens to ravens and paddles with alligators in wild and scenic places. But she also knows that true adventure can be found just outside your window. And sometimes it's pretty racy. Watching two big black stink bugs mate is about as exciting as watching a tortoise race. No, I take that back. There's more action with the tortoises usually. One day, I witnessed a buggy menage a trois right outside my door. Two stink bugs had assumed the position, stacked on top of each other, his belly on her back, his head over her head, and not moving for a very long time, causing me to wonder if he does his reproductive duty and then dies in the saddle. When a third enterprising beetle tried to join in by crawling on top, each beetle has six legs, so for a moment, it looked like an X-rated Rockettes rehearsal. The original top was having none of that threesome action. He moved sideways, dislodging the bold intruder who literally went belly up, then righted his bulky carapace and wandered away while Mr. Stink reset himself on top of his mate. Then I saw the unexpected. He was gently stroking her in a swimming motion, an Australian crawl without the water. Using his two front appendages, he gently and repeatedly touched her on both sides. It's okay, honey. Really. Calm down. We can do this. And then they went back to the stillness of corpses that I was accustomed to seeing. But maybe not. Maybe I was witnessing tantric bug love. Maybe they were experiencing deeply satisfying hours of communion practicing inner flute and achieving pleasure most humans can only fantasize about. I began to wonder what I really knew about my neighbors who engage in sex in public places and appear to wander around like tourists without a map. Named by French zoologist Edouard Garand-Monville in 1844, these peregrinators feed on caterpillars and are quite benign these are Callosoma peregrinators, one of 167 varieties found throughout the world. Here in the Southwest, they are big, black, about two and a half inches long, and are determined walkers, hence the name. When they feel threatened, which is often, they assume downward dog position, tush up, head down, and excrete a stink that might as well be a rumor because it never reaches my nose. Otherwise, 
They kind of remind me of golden retrievers, ubiquitous, mildly curious, just yup, yup, yupping around, checking things out, not seeming dumb, but not wildly smart like my raven buddies. As I write this, a stink bug is exploring a napkin in my studio, and I'm about to take him outside to his home, my home, our home in the desert. You can see Beth Serdit's portrait of the amorous stink bugs on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.